Hey folks, before we get started, I wanted to tell you about the Consumer VC Summit. The Consumer VC Summit is a three-day virtual event that is focused on e-commerce, retail, and innovation. This is all happening February 23rd through 25th, 2021. Mark Nathan and I have really poured our souls into it. During the day is a mix of talks and panel discussions with some incredible founders and investors that focus on these sectors. In the evenings, we're going to be throwing networking events, and if you're a founder, you'll also have access to mentoring sessions, which means you'll meet three investors or industry professionals for feedback about your business. All of our talks and panels will also be available for replay with a ticket. Please check out summit.theconsumervc.com and enter ConsumerVC for a 20% discount. This is also located in the show notes. We look forward to seeing you there. Now on to the episode. Hello and welcome to the Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital pertaining to consumer-facing startups. That's both consumer technology and physical goods. We're interested in learning what the world's leading VCs look for in founders and opportunities, as well as learning from venture-backed B2C founders who have grown their businesses to incredible heights. For those who attended our virtual summit last week about CPG, thank you. We had a blast putting it together, and we hope you all enjoyed it. We certainly did. Our guest today is Elaine Russell, who co-leads Graycroft's Albertsons Fund. Her main focus is on the future of retail, and we had a compelling conversation about her interests and trends she's excited about in that area. Previously, she was a partner at PLG Ventures and was the co-founder CEO of Little Key in Chicago, an on-demand marketplace for parents to discover and book kids' classes and activities. Our main topic of this conversation was the future of retail. And without further ado, here's Elaine. Elaine, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Doing great. Thank you. So I know that you've worked on both sides of the table as um, founder and operator and now as an investor. What were some of your learnings when you were a founder? Yeah, you're right. I've, I've been a founder of two different companies and I also spent a little over 10 years operating, mostly in startups of, I guess, varying sizes. But there was a lot of learnings from when I was a founder. Um, one of them, I think that was probably the biggest takeaway, and this may be a bit of a theme for me, it usually is, is just around team and specifically founding team, but also that early, you know, zero, one to 10 people team. I learned a lot as a founder that those are the most important people that you bring on. I think it's reiterated and it has changed how I am as an investor too, because I do focus a lot on that. And one other thing that I learned and it ties in a lot to the team, but, you know, people talk a lot about whether to have a co-founder or to be a solo founder. And I don't think there's a right or a wrong answer there. But I did learn the hard way what kind of person I am. And so I think that the right answer there is actually to know yourself well enough 
to know whether you are somebody who thrives more with a team and specifically a founding team, or if you're somebody who is really going to thrive better long-term as a solo founder. And my rule of thumb is I actually think that probably, this is an opinion, but I think that 80% of people roughly in the world are probably better team people, so better with co-founders. And there's probably a 20% of the population that actually thrives better as a solo founder. And so that's something that I usually pry with founders. And I learned sort of the hard way by by being a solo founder first and learning that that was just not my jam. And for people to figure that out. And um, with my second company, I brought in two really amazing co-founders alongside myself. And that made all of the difference in the world for me. And so I think it's just really important for founders to know which side of the fence they sit on. Are they a person who thrives better with co-founders or are they that 20% that actually does better alone as a solo founder? I really appreciate that. And I don't mean to actually go off script this early in our conversation, but I've also heard from other investors or founders, or I think it was in an article that I read about the 80%, 20% that maybe 80% of founders maybe should found a company as a team rather than going 20% solo. But I wanted to talk, how do you think, jumping ahead a little bit, but when you're evaluating founders and thinking about on the due diligence side, how do you think about complementary skill sets for folks that are listening that are thinking thinking of starting a company, thinking of picking a co-founder. One of the things that I discuss with for founders that it is a partnership from the beginning is how do you think about complementary skills, but making sure that you're not only, you know, in your own box per se, and still making it collaborative. I was wondering if you just had some thoughts around that. People have different views on this. My view is that in terms of looking at founders, or if you're a founder looking for a co-founder, that requirement of having complementary skills to me is a nice to have. It's great if you find that perfect person who is an engineer and you're a business person. Well, perfect, great. But way more important than that, I think is complementary personalities and shared goals. More often, the issues that I see with co-founders do not come across because one person is, you know, not complementing the other just perfectly from a skill set perspective. It's because they are on different social emotional levels or they have different goals for the company, but they're not aligned in long-term thinking for the company or the way that they lead, the culture that they want to build. It's really more of like the kind of touchy-feely side of things that I think you need alignment and be, I wouldn't even necessarily use the world complimentary there. I think you need to be just fully aligned there with your co-founder. And if you have that and you have mutual respect, I think that is really necessary. If you have on top of that complementary skills, amazing, perfect, great. But on the flip side, you know, I also don't think that, you know, you need to have somebody who's completely redundant to yourself because that in itself could cause tension around, you know, well, I'm the BD person. I'm supposed to be doing sales. You're supposed to be doing something else. Well, no, they want to do sales. So, you know, having clear cut roles and responsibilities, along with just that shared vision, shared goals for the type of company that they want to build is vital. That's really refreshing to hear, to be honest, because I feel like I hear just people say, oh, yeah, if you bring on a co-founder, they have to have complementary skill sets. And it sounds like this, you know, perfect partnership, per se, where all your weaknesses are the other person's strengths and whatnot. And so to me, that's really refreshing here. I also just feel like 
complimentary just gets thrown around a lot in startups and in as well when, when picking co-founders. So um, I really appreciate that. So what attracted you to become an investor after your operating experience? I guess just the right time, the right place, the right opportunity. It was not something I was actually looking into or looking to move into. I had moved to LA. I had sold my company. I was actually looking into operating roles. Um, I've always been a product person. So running product for a probably consumer facing company was what I was looking at. But I'm also kind of a stickler for being really passionate about not just the product, but the people at the company. And I just hadn't found the right place yet. I came across my prior partner, Peter Goldberg, who was prominent angel investor in LA. And he was looking to create a firm around his family office that was investing in startups. And so we ended up partnering together to create PLG Ventures. And, you know, before long, we had about 50 early stage companies in our portfolio, all family office capital. So we did not take in external LPs. And it allowed us to move really quickly. I think at the end of the day, what moved me to being a VC, I guess, was just doing something different and learning a completely new role that I had never done before. That was intriguing. But what actually kind of sealed the deal was, you know, I had been just coming off being a founder. And as many of us know, that can be an emotional roller coaster. And you do learn a lot as a founder. And like I just said, a lot of my learnings came in the form of more social emotional learnings. And so my partner, Peter, and I actually shared a really strong mutual vision around the type of founders we wanted to invest in and helping our founders with leadership, culture building, co-founder relationships, etc. And so that became sort of the mission underlying our investment thesis, of course, that I still really take with me today, I would say, at Graycroft as well. That's awesome. Thanks so much for sharing. How has the transition been working at a family office? Now you co-lead a Graycroft's Albertsons fund where you have one LP in Albertsons. What's been the transition like for you going from a family office to more maybe traditional venture capital? I would say that it'd be probably similar to someone working for themselves or, or starting their own company and then going back to a more established, still a startup probably, but a more established startup. So, you know, working at PLG Ventures, it was, um, you know, we were building, we were building our initial portfolio. We were learning as we went and we were developing our own processes for the first time and everything that we did. And coming to Graycroft, I think it's been great because you know, they have a playbook. All of the partners have been doing this for a long time. And so it's launched me back into learning a lot of the fundamentals that maybe I had taught myself over the past years, but I'm able to be a part of a more established process and playbook with Graycroft, which has been really fun for me. No, that's great. No, that's great. And that makes a lot of sense. So walk me through a little bit of um, the uh, Graycroft's Albertsons Fund. Um, talk to me a little bit about the structure and kind of where the fund falls as you think of it between, you know, financial versus corporate or strategic. Yeah. So maybe I'll just give you a little bit of the background of Graycroft and Albertsons Fund so you can see them side by side. But, you know, Graycroft is a traditional venture capital fund. We have offices. Well, I guess we're everywhere today, but we have technically we have offices in LA and New York and we've always been LA and New York. We are on our, our sixth fund. It's a $300 million fund and we have a later stage fund as well. So our core fund focuses on series A investments and we also do some seed investments out of that as well. We have a later stage fund as 
as well that does series B and beyond investing. So we like to think of ourselves as a full life cycle investors where we can come in on a seed round and invest all the way through to IPO or exit. The Albertsons Fund, it's a $50 million fund that sits really alongside Graycroft's core fund. And while we have a different LP, well, we have the same LP structure, we just have a different LP. We operate very similarly, if not just the same to how Graycross Core Fund operates. I invest in seed and series A companies as well. I just happen to be more industry focused and strategic in, in the type of companies that I am investing in. No, that's really helpful. Talk to you about some of the advantages since you are industry focused and, and a little bit too of how you think about grocery tech and grocery retail and, and your actual focus. Yeah, and I'll also go back and because I think one more part to add, which answers your question more fully around how do we think about the fund being financial versus corporate or strategic? At the end of the day, we are a great craft run fund. We are building a portfolio to create a financial return. So we actually view this as a financial fund, I would say. But that being said, we have one incredibly involved and strategic LP that we work very closely with. So to that extent, we believe that if we can can use Greycroft's investment, call it machine or engine that, you know, does some of the best sourcing and diligence and has a great network to making these decisions. We can combine that with the, the scale and just capabilities that Albertsons has to create a increased financial return, or in other words, to help our portfolio companies become more successful. And so, you know, if we can use Albertsons as a really strategic kind of match with all of our portfolio companies, we think it's a win-win from both of their point of views. Like we can not only add a lot of value to our portfolio companies, but, you know, our portfolio companies are hopefully some of the most innovative and inspiring companies out there in this sector that we're focused on. And if we can showcase them to Albertsons and help Albertsons, you know, open their eyes around the type of technology they should be looking at and partnering on. This should drive both sides of the businesses uh, forward. And therefore we think could create a outsized financial return for a fund manager or for a fund in, in general. Going then to your second question around the sectors and industries, I can talk to you quickly about that. You know, I like to call this fund focused on the future of retail. And we don't have a really strict mandate, but we like to be strategic in how we invest. Again, going back to the prior question is that's why we want to be strategic, but really there's three different pillars that we are looking to invest in. One is next generation retailers. This could be marketplaces, e-commerce usually has a software angle to it. An example here would be we're investors in a company called Mercado. They're a marketplace for specialty grocers. So from a consumer standpoint, I can shop my local grocery stores via either just via the app or through a subscription model as well. And then from the grocery standpoint, from the B2B standpoint, they are kind of the Shopify for specialty grocer. So they're going in and actually enabling these grocers to be online and selling via e-commerce. The next pillar would be consumer software. So we are focused on giving consumers different experiences in and around, I would say, grocery, food 
food, beverage, or other categories that have been lacking in, in that consumer software space. An example here would be we're investors in a company called Anycart. They are building an app to basically be the best front end grocery shopping experience. You can shop any of your large grocery brands or stores, I should say, via Anycart. And they are recipe driven. So if you want to go on, instead of just saying, I want my milk and, milk and eggs, I want to make pasta carbonara tonight, you can easily buy all of the recipe ingredients and also have the content to make that recipe as well. The last pillar that we're focused on is really more around enterprise software. So software that's enabling retailers in any sort of way. This can be pretty broad because if you think about Albertsons as a $60 billion retailer. They use software in so many different places of their business. It could be anything from, you know, keeping your produce, you know, fresh longer to waste management to consumer loyalty marketing to, you know, you name it. And yeah, those are basically our three big pillars. And I guess also I should mention an example for the enterprise software thesis. An example there would be we're investors in a company called Loyal Guru. They are a consumer marketing platform to manage all of your couponing and promotions. And they're actually European based, but starting to sell in the US as well. No, absolutely. Thanks so much for breaking it down. That's really helpful. I mean, it seems like in all three pillars that you've described during COVID, I would imagine that there's a pressure on grocery chains in order to innovate, especially on the e-commerce side. Have you seen an acceleration in terms of the opportunities during COVID or even an uptick in terms of investments that you're making? We have seen definitely an uptick in opportunities. I'd say our investment has, we've probably increased, but at the very least, we've kept steady. Um, we have not slowed down our investments at all post-COVID or during COVID. Graycroft across the board, we've been very active. When there, There's really been no change in investment activity for the worse. It has not slowed down. In terms of grocery-specific opportunities, I mean, as we've seen during COVID, grocery is definitely a category that is going to thrive during these type of situations. Food is necessary. And our prior hypothesis around sort of the future of retail or the future of grocery, specifically, what we thought would happen in the next five to 10 years is going to happen now in the next 12 months, 18 months. So it has been a massive acceleration of retail in general. And I think every single large company retailer out there is thinking about how they're going to stay afloat, how they're going to be competitive and how they're going to adopt during these times. And usually when that happens, most of these bigger companies go into sort of a buy, build or partner analysis for every little thing. And that's where, you know, the more that we can drive these partnerships with startups, I think is great for, for our economy. And, you know, they're starting to identify areas, Albertsons is starting to identify areas where they might be better off building certain technologies, buying certain technologies, and then partnering on certain technologies. But I think everybody does know that there is a lot of work to do to catch up to the consumer demands that are going to be be present for the next 12 months. No, exactly. Are you able to, I know you've given examples as well with some of the companies that you've invested in, so maybe this is repetitive, but are you able to give a couple examples in terms of what you think would have happened within, obviously we have 
the e-commerce penetration has skyrocketed during COVID. But are there any like specific examples in terms of what's on retailers' minds, such as Albertsons, when it comes to innovation that's happening within the next 12 months as opposed to five years? Yeah. I think that there's a couple different areas we talk a lot about. I sort of break it up into three big areas. One, there's in-store. So even though we talk about e-commerce accelerating a lot, like in-store is still going to exist and it's going to change. And so there's a lot of innovation that's going to happen in the store itself. Some examples of this is going to be autonomous checkout. It's going to be AI-powered customer service as you're walking through the aisles. A lot of different, maybe not always software-focused, but hardware-focused innovation around keeping the store safe and clean and keeping employees um, healthy. On the e-commerce front, there's so much on the e-commerce front, but you know, we went from being a somewhere between a two and 4% e-commerce penetration rate over from, from total grocery sales, two to 4% happened online. They're now estimating that over the next five years, that will go to 15 to 20% and, and stay pretty static there. I think we peaked at like almost 15% during COVID as well. And so, you know, e-commerce is all of a sudden going to be a huge portion of grocery revenue going forward. So improving that consumer experience everywhere from the app that you're going to be shopping on to getting the groceries delivered efficiently at your door the same day is going to require innovation from the grocers. Some of that is directly linked to what I would call sort of the third big area of innovation or change, which is around the supply chain of groceries. And how can we actually achieve to support this increase in e-commerce rates and same day delivery? That's going to require major shifts in grocers' supply chains and their distribution strategies. So I think that we'll see a lot of movement in all of those areas. That makes a lot of sense. When I was talking with a Sunny Dillon, when you know, we, we were talking a little bit about retail and grocery innovation. He was saying how also just, I think on to your last point around one day delivery, there's gonna be a lot more dark stores and just a lot of the supply chains are gonna change with a lot more fulfillment centers. Uh, going. So I think that it's also just interesting looking at real estate, how that's going to change as well. As you mentioned, you you invest in the seed in series A. What are some of the requirements that you like to see at both stages in terms of landmarks that founders have achieved? I don't always love to talk about it from a milestone perspective because I think it's just can be dependent on the, whether you're talking about a consumer facing company or an enterprise or SMB, like there's just so many variables in that. But what I do look for, and from a kind of a diligence process, you know, not to sound like a broken record, but again, it does a lot of it come back to the team, the founder's connection to the problem that they're solving. I do like to know that that founder has experienced that problem. They've solved this problem before. They're passionate about it. They have built up a team that whether or not it's co-founders or you're a solo founder, but they've built up a team that does provide some sort of complementary skills for them, just from the sense that they know their strengths and they know their weaknesses. And then from the company itself, you know, I think that... If you're a first time founder, you know, I do like to see product market fit. I like to see the product traction. I want to see some sort of momentum building there. The metrics are a little bit dependent again on the industry that you're in. But if you're a repeat founder, or if this is your, you know, you're a serial entrepreneur, I think things kind of change again. And, and, you know, we tend to at Graycroft be very people focused in how we invest. And sometimes that's trusting a person we've trusted before 
to be able to build something again that is great. And so I know that's not the most perfect answer to give you very specific milestones, but I guess it does depend. And beyond product market fit, I do also like to talk to customers. I like having the referrals and the the conversations from people outside of the team who have either worked with the founder or their current client, just understanding how important that product is in their life today, whether they're an enterprise client or a consumer. I like to know that that product has found that fit and is solving an important problem for the user. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. Now, during COVID, since you've had to meet founders remotely, has it been difficult establishing conviction within founders? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I'm definitely a people person and I enjoy meeting founders in person and building like that connection. But it is really fascinating to have watched how we as humans have all adopted to the new way of life. You know, I think that It's fairly impressive how we've learned to create connections via Zoom or whatever method of video conferencing you're using. And so it's not been nearly as hard as I originally thought it would be. I definitely went into this saying, how in the world are we going to create a connection with founders and really kind of be able to read them the way you want to be able to read them as a potential investor over video? But I've been shocked that it's not been near as hard as we thought. I feel like We've been active, we've been investing, we've even been hiring people to do Graycroft. One of our analysts that I work with on a daily basis now, he's probably the person I work with arguably the most at the firm now because he spends a good portion of his time as an analyst for the Albertsons Fund. And I have never met him in person. He started you know, right in uh, mid-March, like right when COVID hit. And he's obviously been um, remote this entire time. So you know, we've adopted and I, I truly feel like I probably know him just as well as I I know um, many of the other team members at Greycroft who I've, of course, met in person. Yeah, that's fascinating. It reminds me, I interviewed Sasha from Atomico out of London, and she actually joined Atomico during COVID. And so she actually hadn't met any of her I'm in person. She she did say that she did like a garden walk with like a couple of her colleagues. So she was able to meet a couple of them in person. But yeah, she says that I, she hasn't still, at least by the time we chatted, hadn't met the whole team yet. So yeah. And I mean, it's, it's really crazy from both sides, from the hiring perspective, but also the funding perspective. And it's been a lot smoother than I thought. And I think that the same qualities that you're looking for in a founder when you meet them face to face have to be present via Zoom. You know, there are still like a likability factor, like a a connection factor that you're looking for with founders because it is a long-term relationship. When you invest in a company, especially if you're leading a series A or something like that, and you're taking a board seat, this is a relationship that you're going to have for a very long time. And you want to make sure that there is a connection there and that these are people that you trust. And, you know, we truly do believe that we are backing those founders to build, you know, most likely the company that we're investing in. But if that happens to change along the way, you know, at the end of the day, we are investing in those people. Right. I want to know also just how's like today's landscape in terms of speed and deals getting done. When I talked to Ezra Galston at Starting Line, this was back in July, which seems like a lifetime ago, but he was saying how he thought that levels were going so fast. It was almost pre-COVID levels in terms of deals getting done. For sure. I would definitely agree with that. I think that the funding has, has not dried up. I think there was maybe a little bit of a blip where it was like, okay, if you're out raising, then that means there might've been 
issues, but we've definitely passed that point. And, you know, I think that there probably was a shakeout, but the companies that are raising now, I mean, the rounds that we're seeing get done, getting done are at pretty crazy valuations and they're getting done fast. Maybe that has to do, there's less travel and all that kind of stuff, but it is, it's happening at warp speed and valuations are definitely pre-COVID levels. We were kind of hoping that they would reset or something. I don't think it actually happened, at least not in the industries that we're looking at. I uh, I would also say that, you know, what's another really surprising thing that has happened, you know, obviously during a pandemic like COVID, certain industries just got really hit and certain companies got really hit. And while we were really nervous about some of our portfolio for a period of time, it's actually those companies that have come out really strong for the most part. I'm, I'm sure there's exceptions, but I've seen so many of these companies where we thought, well, that is just the end of this company. And they have adopted and pivoted and come out stronger on the other side. It's probably was a shift that maybe they needed to make in their business model anyways, but COVID just pushed them to make that shift a lot faster and a lot more efficient. Um, I think a lot of expenses was trimmed or trimmed across the board from all companies. So all these companies became, you know, their runways went from six months to 16 months overnight when people started cutting expenses and watching their expenses and being conscious of all of that and planning for, you know, we'd always told people plan for the worst, hope for the best and plan for the worst. And COVID definitely kind of kicked that into gear for so many companies. And I think that it's been very refreshing to watch companies that we thought were going to struggle for a long time are actually, I think, going to thrive because of COVID in some way, shape or form. That's great. That's really, really terrific to hear. So what's one thing you would change when it came to venture capital? I think that when I was a founder, I always used to say that I felt like I had to tell my investors a certain story, a certain narrative. And I would joke that, you know, this was the narrative that like, I just, I felt like I had to, again, this is years and years and years ago, but I felt like this was the narrative I kind of had to say. And then I would talk to my advisors and I had a slightly different narrative maybe that I felt like I need, I could say I could open up a little bit more. And then I had my employees that like I could open up a little bit more to them, but I still had a narrative I had to kind of say. And then there was my co-founders who I was obviously very honest with and, and everything, but there was still like this, this narrative. And then there was the story that I told only my husband, right at home at night or something, the story that I'd be willing to tell him. And then there was the story as a founder that never leaves your own head and you're never going to even utter the words out loud. And so there was just so many layers of like the relationship a founder has with the people around them, whether it's investors or mentors, advisors, employees, co-founders, or your family. And, you know, my goal as an investor coming into venture is to kind of break that down a bit and to get the investors at a much like more real and lower level onto a more real narrative with the founders, because I think that's when we can actually be really helpful to founders when we understand what's actually going on. And some people don't have a problem with this at all. But I do think that at least in the past, founders got in this mode of always feeling like they needed to impress or not disappoint people. And I think that what comes along with being honest and, and maybe disappointing people is you get a lot more out of your investors that way. We can be more helpful, which is at the end of the day, our goal. And so my goal for changing venture is to just be more helpful 
I think, to our founders and to the companies. One way to look at it is how I just described in terms of just the relationship that you can have with a founder. And the second way is the second way I've gone about doing it, or the other way I look at it is that an example would be the partnership we have with Albertsons, you know, creating this strategic partnership with Albertsons and aligning, you know, a Greycraft investment mentality with the reach um, and synergy potential of a company like Albertsons, hopefully can actually create value for our portfolio companies. So those are so two different ways that I am looking to not be just a check and actually be very helpful to all of our founders. I really appreciate that because I've had a lot of folks on the show that talk about empathy and having empathy for founders. You've really broken it down, you know, when you were a founder and the different layers that you had to go through in order to how you maybe present yourself or the narrative that you describe yourself in. And I think just being able to be more open, especially, you know, as an investor, allowing the founder to be a lot more open to you, it's then of course that just allows you to be a lot more helpful. So that's that's really terrific how you explained it. I really appreciate that. So what's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? Yeah, so my personal and professional sort of are maybe merged together. I'll have to think about one that might even be more personal, but... <laughs> I guess my life is either my kids or my work. And so, you know, they're sort of one and the same, but I'll tell you two great books that I love and they've helped me in different ways. One is The Culture Code. It just sort of talks about how to build a startup what culture means, how many different forms it can come in. And I think it's something that I talk about at work a lot with founders and I feel pretty passionate about in order to attract and retain top talent out there. You know, it's everyone talks about it today. They want to work for the right people. They care a little bit less about what they're doing and they care who they're doing it for. And so with that comes culture. And if you can build a great culture, it will attract great talent. And then that will in turn probably build a better product. And at the end of the day, you will be more successful. From a personal level, I've always gravitated to the book, Good to Great. I think that it's a great book around leadership and what it means to kind of make that transition from good to great. And um, I think I read it originally back in business school a long time ago and probably could use a reread recently, but it's always been a book that I have loved. I really appreciate that. I'm excited to add it to the book list. This is going to be great. And I completely agree with you about building a great culture. You know, uh, culture trumps strategy. I know that's been said a lot, but that's really terrific. So what's your most recent investment and what makes you excited about it? No, we're, we are investors in a company called Anycart. So I'll talk about them. We've actually invested now two times in them, their seed round and their upcoming round. And they are, I think I, I talked a little bit about them actually a few minutes ago, but they're very top of mind. So I'll talk about them one more time and give them some more time. But they will be launching in about a month, a, a new app. Right now they're web-based, but it is a new way to shop for your groceries. And again, you know, I've always been the family that we've tried every meal plan out there, every subscription business trying to find the right thing for us. And, um, you know, the problems that we've run into and in Greycroft, we've invested in some of the, some wonderful meal subscription businesses, but the problem for me has always been time and expense. It does get very expensive to buy, you know, boxes delivered to your door with pre-cut food and, and ready to cook. It also is extremely time consuming, but at the end of the day, I'm still a mom of three kids and I need to get dinner on the table every night at a reasonable hour quickly and something that my kids will actually eat. 
And so that is an ever-present challenge that I think a lot of families face. And so I'm still going to the grocery store. I'm still shopping for everything else I need. It becomes a lot easier if I can just buy those recipe items, all of the ingredients, buy recipe via my grocery store or via whatever way I am currently shopping for groceries and do it with my store right down the street, either pick it up or get it delivered same day, et cetera. So any cart is a front end experience for me to be able to do that, to shop by recipe or by aisle, depending on what sort of needs I have. And then finishing off the experience by providing like cooking instructions, videos, et cetera. And at the end of the day, what you get is, you know, the same results around all of your grocery store ingredients, you know, your normal things you're going to buy, but also your ingredients at a much cheaper price because you're not shipping all this material and ingredients to somebody for one recipe. So I'm really excited for them. We're funding them again right now. And it's going to be, I think, you know, as e-commerce grows for people while they're shopping, um, AnyCart's going to be a great, a great service for people. I love that. Thanks so much for sharing. You've certainly convinced me. I'm definitely going to try it out. It sounds great because I don't have three kids, but I run into the same problem in terms of, you know, really liking a recipe, but then, you know, not knowing or having to pick the time consuming element of going in and picking out the individual ingredients. So really excited to check out any card. That's great. My final question is what's one piece of advice that you have to founders that are currently fundraising? I think that just doing their homework a bit before they're talking to an investor and understanding with that particular person or investor or fund, what they're looking for and what makes them tick a bit. And usually you can find that even through podcasts like this, I would say. <laughs> you can find a lot of information about the fund online, I'm sure, um, or through your network and talking to people. But I know when someone, when I talk to somebody who's done their homework and knows that, you know, I'm focused on a fund backed by Albertsons, that we're looking at these three different categories, that, you know, this is what specific things that we're looking for and that make me excited. I can tell. And that means that I don't look for that because I want to have a great conversation with a founder. I look for that because that makes me think that they could be a great salesperson for their product and that they're going to do that when they're talking to a client and that will get them a better sale. And in turn, fast forward, will actually make the company more successful. And so I just, I do look for a founder that comes prepared and has a view on why they're having this conversation or why we are talking specifically. No, I think that's a great point. I think that also what you allude to well is, you know, a big part of the founder's job is to sell right? Whether to customers for folks to sign on as investors. So, and I think that sometimes that can be a little bit overlooked in terms of being a founder. Yeah. And it's not about, you know, me feeling like, oh, they've done the re research on me. It's really about that skill set. If I think that they have that skill set to do that sale really well, whether you're talking to an investor today or whether I think you could get investment dollars easily down the road, or if you're talking to a client, a potential client and whether you can make that sale. So I agree with you. I think that sales is a really big part of the job. And I like to look for qualities around that in a founder. Absolutely. Totally agree. Well, Elaine, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure time with Elaine on the show. Thank you, Elaine, again for your time. If you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as it helps other folks find it, that would really be helpful. If you have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumerbc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks, and please stay safe.